And so if you're a note taker, here's what we're talking about tonight. What are collisions and conflicts in relationships look like? Three points, uh, three things that I want to touch on. But the first is the source of our conflict. It talks about this in verse one. The second is the fuel for this conflict. What keeps it going? What, what makes us have these collisions almost daily with other people? And the third thing is the exit strategy. So the source, the fuel, and the exit strategy. Why don't you stand up and see if this also resonates with you and you feel like the Bible gets you. This is James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your, your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, and so you quarrel and you fight. You don't have because you don't ask God, and even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you can spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that God jealously longs or yearns for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. That is why the scripture says, while God opposes the proud, he shows favor to the humble. So submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and change your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray, and then we'll kind of explore this in those three ways I mentioned. Our God, we thank you that you have a different agenda for our relationships than we have for our relationships. We thank you that you are up to so much more uh, than we are up to. You don't settle. Uh, you're not distracted. You don't give in. You don't give up. We thank you for that. That's our hope tonight, Father, that even this passage, which is hard to hear, like Apple said earlier, a passage like this that cuts could even be hopeful if it means that you're coming to us with truth, coming to us with hope and healing. And so we pray that even tonight you would do that very thing. Because we know you love to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So here's the deal. James just asked you and I a question. How would you answer his question when he says, what causes fights and quarrels among us? And I should mention maybe at the beginning that uh, fights and quarrels or conflict, collision, those are words that probably resonate with some of you more than others, like, Maybe some one of you like beat up somebody and I'm all on your way here. You're, you're an aggressor. You're confrontational. You don't mind telling people what's up. Uh, you don't mind telling people exactly what's on your mind. And you have a lot of fights and quarrels and collisions in your relationship. And you're like, oh, this passage is awesome. But maybe if you're a more passive, um, gentler, quieter person, uh, you experience this not so much in words like fighting and quarreling and conflict. You'd say, I don't think I've had a fight in my relationships in the past month. But where is resentment or coldness of heart or a lack of charity? 
uh, or a lack of humility been the past few weeks? Where has bitterness creeped in? Where has uh, thinking kind of bad thoughts pushing people away from you been the past few weeks? And so whether you experience this as actual fights <clears throat> or something more innocent than that, this is a passage for you. So how would you answer the question? James asks you, first off, he's writing to people just like you, Christians who have relationship problems. Uh, hey, why do you fight? Here's a couple of answers uh, that I know you give and I give too. And I don't think we ever really get past this without a nudge from a loving God. What's, what's in common with everything I'm about to say is this. Uh, we blame things outside of us, things around us where our relationship problems, our resentments, our conflict, our collisions with other people. We blame anything and everything outside of us. Rarely do we point our finger inside or look inside. Some of the things we blame frequently, this is maybe a top five list or something, circumstances. You were late and it made me mad. You're always late and it always makes me mad. We're blaming a circumstance of someone else being late for me being angry with that person or that situation. Moods. I didn't get much sleep last night. This is a lot of you right now. Career fairs coming up, first round of tests coming up. I didn't get much sleep last night. I don't want to talk to anybody. That's why I'm in a bad mood today. We blame an external circumstance or an internal issue. Our personality, we can say things like, oh, I'm an extrovert. I just say it like it is. I hate drama. I don't have time to be politically correct. Sorry if you're offended by that. We blame external things, circumstances, moods, personalities for things that are actually a lot deeper than that. And of course, we all blame other people. We saw that in last week's passage. It's their fault. He's just an argumentative guy. She's not a very thoughtful girlfriend. Uh, my dad just doesn't get me. I'm not saying that these are inaccurate sometimes. People do run late. Dads and moms do love poorly. Girlfriends and boyfriends do let each other down. But I'm saying we tend to blame, more often than not, everything outside of us, and we give a free pass where we don't even notice everything inside of us. And so if you were in James's Sunday school class, and little teacher James comes in and he says, hey, what do you, where do your fights come from? All of the answers we tend to give him, he'd say, nope. And you can't say Jesus or God to this question because then you're a heretic. And so he would say, our desire, our, our our fighting, our quarreling comes. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? As if you should have known. He doesn't say, oh, I have received this from on high. They come from your desires. He says, hey, duh, don't you know this? That your fights and your the reason there's war around you is because there's a war inside of you. The reason you fight with others outside of you is because there's a fight going on at the deepest core of your being. That's why we fight. He calls it inner desires, inner longings. We'll unpack that in just a second. Some of you spent all of last spring semester going through one of our REF Bible studies on the book of James. And this is sounding familiar to you because you talked about this passage. And uh, one of the illustrations that maybe you did in that group or you didn't is this. I, this, is, this kind of visually depicts what James is talking about. My question to you uh, is... Why is water spilling on the floor and ruining the microphone and getting Daniel and Kyle wet? Why is water spilling on the floor? That's rhetorical. It'll be weird if you answer out loud. <laughs> um, why does water spill on the floor when I shake this bottle? There's two answers. There's two options. 
One is because I'm shaking it. Here's the problem with that answer. If I went outside real quick and dumped this water out and shook it, does shaking a Nalgene bottle magically make water appear and fall out? The only reason water came out and fell on the floor is because there was water in here to begin with. Uh, me agitating this, annoying this, shaking it, rattling it, throwing it off, was simply the occasion for what was inside to come outside. If there was nothing inside, it wouldn't have come outside, right? So the shaking, the circumstances, the moods, the personalities, the suffering, the stuff that happens to you isn't the cause of our tension, resentment, relationship problems, cold shoulders. I don't talk to that person anymore. The cause of it is what is inside that was revealed by those shaking moments, right? What, uh, what those moments do is simply introduce us to ourselves a little bit better. So I want to come back and ask you the question again. Why do your roommate's dirty dishes being left out again? And it's only a month in. Why does it bug you so bad? That's, that's not a loving thing for them to do. Let's just say that. But why does it, for those of you who are like, you're come unglued when you see this. You're like, why does it have such a hold on your heart? For those of you with a shallow boyfriend or shallow girlfriend or an insensitive roommate or friend or parent, why does it, why does it make you so angry? And make you want to bail so much? What inner desires is it tapping into? How do those moments of shaking, or the professor who just dumped another paper on you right before the career fair, how does these shaking moments, these annoying, agitating moments, reveal what was always inside but always hidden? That's, that's how God sees our day-to-day -day circumstances and why they happen. These things hurt because they shake us. And so let me say it just one more time. There is a war around us because there's a war inside of us. There's war in our relationships because there's war in my heart. James goes on and he talks about this uh, a little bit more. Before we push on, though, i got to make sure you're with me because here's where I get stuck and where I'm, where I'm afraid most of you get stuck to because you're human beings like me. Um, we get stuck in our emotional response to all these shaking events, Right? It could be fear. The shaking moments of your life could be intense fear because now the future's unknown. It could be um, just anger. That's something I'm noticing in my life a lot more lately that I didn't used to notice. It's like, why do I get angry? I used to get afraid. Now I get angry. Why? Uh, what, what is your response to those shaking moments? Here's the thing about emotions and why we get stuck there. Why emotions are kind of the quicksand. For the guys and the girls, for the stoics in the room who says, I've never felt an emotion in my life. And for kind of the, the shrinking violets who feel everything. Emotions are the first responders of relationships. They are always first on the scene. And they never knock and ask your permission to come. Right? You're like, Sean, do you mind if, is it okay if we panic right now? <laughs> Is it okay if you have debilitating sadness right now because of that overheard comment from that other person? Emotions are the first responders. The second something happens, you feel it in your bones, and you can't shake it. You can't get rid of it. You can try to outthink it. You can try to outrun it, but they are in you, so they're always with you. And I think this is where we get stuck and the wheels spin, and it's the reason why sometimes we don't make much progress in our conflicts, in our relationships and in our problems with other people is because we, we can't get past, I'm so mad, or I'm so hurt, 
or I can't believe they did that, or I'm broken, or I'm disappointed. We get stuck there. I get stuck there, and I think you get stuck there too. Here's the thing about emotions, though. They're not just the first responders who are always first on the scene. They're not just things that show up before you ask them to be there. They're not just things you always have to deal with. Uh, emotions are also, and I'm, I'm talking about, I get it, I'm talking about emotions in a negative sense. God gave us emotions. There's a glorious, beautiful part of it, too. None of y'all want a life that's emotionless. Let's just say that caveat. But, but emotions, especially these hard, nasty emotions like the ones that make our relationships hard, uh, it's like there's smoke, and anytime there's smoke, there's a fire. And so the emotions, the pain, the hurt, the frustration, the annoyance, the I want to get out of this and away from this is so strong that either we don't have time or we don't have the ability to trace those emotions back to their source. We see the smoke. But we don't get to the fire, and so we just we spend our relationships and our lives pushing smoke away, floating it away. Get the smoke away so I can be happy again in this relationship, or break up or move out with this person because there's too much smoke in my life from them. And we don't have time to get down to the root of it. So keep up with me. We've just talked about the source of this conflict, right? Our inner desires. James is about to get a little bit deeper into that. But what's the fuel? Our second point, what's the fuel that fans the flame of this fire, that keeps it going, that makes this something that you walked in tonight struggling with and you will leave tonight struggling with? This little talk or a sermon or reading a scripture passage doesn't fix you and catapult you to the next level of relationship where you achieve zen and no more struggle, no more bickering, no more resentment. Well, the fuel that, fi- that, uh, that, that fans the flame of these inner desires that are battled with us uh, is, is selfish desire. And he says a word, uh, a few, let me find the verse. He says a word down in verse 3. This is the only time I think I've ever quoted Greek to you guys, and it's hopefully the only time I ever will, but here it's helpful because the Greek word is the English word. The Greek word for verse 3 when he says, um, you ask with the wrong motives, you might spend whatever you ask God on your own pleasures. The word there is hedonai, which is hopefully very close to the word hedonism, which is a word we use, especially if you're a philosophy major, English major, or you're in tune with culture. A hedonist is YOLO. You only live once, live it up to the fullest. If you have a desire, satisfy it. I get what I want, the hedonist says, and I'll do anything to get it. Um, If it means having to repetitively move out, if it means repetitively breaking up, if it means just not showing up at places when things get difficult, if it means not showing up to work because I don't want to go to work, that's the life of the hedonist. Any desire you feel, you chase. It's like a dog on a walk who can't say no to every smell he picks up. And so his life is spent running from one interesting smell to the next. And he looks up later and he never gets where he's wanting to go. That's what a hedonist is. And this is what James says And it's not just an innocent little desire. Desire is not a bad thing. We look down. Perhaps we should look down on people with no motivation, no desire. We're like, what's up? Get your life together. Like, get up in the morning and and do something with your life. James isn't saying desire is bad. He's saying drunken desire in a sense. Desire on overdrive can kill you. And it will destroy your relationship with God and with other people. He calls it hedonistic desire, these cravings, these covetousness, 
these things that we have to have. And so my question, though, is how does this word that James throws at us, hedonistic, selfish, self-serving desires, how does that push us a little bit further down the line to understanding why this is such a big problem for all of us, why it won't go away, and why you can't wish it away, and why finding your soulmate won't make it go away either? Why is that? James is saying, let's define these desires a little bit more deeply. James is saying these inner desires, these cravings, these I have to haves, these I can't live withouts, these life isn't worth living withouts, these are actually the motivational core of our being until God intervenes and begins to replace that with love for him. But even as is, even for the Christian, James is talking to Christians, these are the things that litter our hearts. Here's an example to make this a little bit more down to earth. What are some of these hedonistic, selfish, self-serving desires that motivate and animate not just your actions, but your words, your thoughts, your desires, your emotions, your dreams, your visions? It, It works like this. If you most crave and love acceptance, you will love the people that give it to you, and you'll hate the people that withhold it from you. You'll love the ministries, you'll love the places that he preys on you, and you'll gossip about the ones that didn't worship the ground you walked on when you walked in, right? This is hard stuff. We can kind of take it with a a little bit of a laugh because we're all in this together and God gives us. But that's what it looks like if 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 our hearts have fallen in love with being accepted, we will fear and be terrified of rejection. And we will live our lives running from any potential exposure to that threat. If we most love comfort, We will fear hard work and deadlines. We procrastinate. We push off because I want comfort now. I don't want this project. I don't want this conversation with my boyfriend to impinge on my comfort right now. And so comfort lovers are the punters. It's always punt till another day. Put off till tomorrow. I can deal with it then, but I'm going to be comfortable now. We fear that stuff. If pleasure is what your heart has fallen in love with, you will avoid anything difficult. You'll avoid difficult relationship conversations. You'll avoid difficult roommate confrontations. And you live life on the run, trying to keep one step ahead of the threats to pleasure. Anything that threatens that gets pushed away. If power is what our hearts have become attached to, the have to have, the I can't live without, then not getting your way uh, or life not happening your way can become a paralyzing Anxiety or a paralyzing fear or a paralyzing anger, right? When things don't turn out your way or somebody thwarted your plan from happening, these things can undo us. And when control is the things or validation is the thing that our heart most wants and craves, that's the main motivator in our relationships. You will insist that other people validate you and you will be the most competitive person in the room. Is that girl prettier than me? Does that guy get more glances from girls than me? Is this person in my group smarter than I am? Did this person get talked about more by the professor up front than I did? You have to have validation. And so your days are one long series of, did this person or this experience or this event validate me or not? And then life becomes exhausting and we get stuck in those emotions waiting for somebody to tell us that we matter. 
The last point is this. The more we love these things, the more sensitive we are about it. Have you ever made an innocent little comment? You didn't mean it badly. It was innocent. You meant it actually to be helpful, but you said a comment or you did something that like set off a nerve. And you're like, whoa, I'm sorry. I don't know what I did or what I said, but I can tell I just hurt you or did something. What's happening there is you just stepped on somebody's deepest love. You challenge what they're most in love with. Or you got in between them and their deepest pursuit. And that is scary and that is frustrating for that person. And that's why they went from zero to 60 in emotions in about two seconds. And so these things that I just talked about, these are the drives that are at war in our hearts. And these, these things aren't at war with each other, like my desire for control is at war with my desire for affirmation. What it means, it's like they're at war to get out. It's like baby birds who are like clamoring for the worm. Everybody's pushing over the others to get out, to get some food. I want, I want to come out and play. I want to get affirmation. I want to get validation. I want you to love me. I want to be God to you. That's what it means that there's a war inside of us. So it's not just that we get shaken and stuff comes out. The stuff inside of us wants to come out and play and get on other people. Let me ask you this real quick. What happens if you ignore the stuff inside? What happens if you pretend it's not there? What happens if you say, actually, God, I don't agree with this. I don't think any of that's going on in my heart. What happens if you're not aware of this happening and it just goes, these fires burn unextinguished? Because we never deal with them. Uh, I came across a study a few years ago on the radio. I don't remember the percentages, so I'm going to make them up. It was a study that sociologists had done. They tracked a big group of married people. Uh, and th- their only question to these married couples is, what's your level of satisfaction in this relationship? Scale of 1 to 10 about. And... Of the people who had been just married one time, they were still with the spouse that they married whenever. They were still with that one person. Their levels of satisfaction were like 60 or 70%. More people were happy than not happy. Then they started tracking the people who got divorced and remarried a second time. Their level of perceived satisfaction in that relationship dropped by 50%. Then they tracked the people who got divorced from that second spouse and went looking for their soulmate again. Perhaps they missed it the first two times, so they went back looking for happiness for that third spouse, and the same thing happened. Their satisfaction dropped another 50% from the previous time and the previous time, and you know what happens with the fourth time. Yes, it went all the way to five marriages. Every time people divorced and got remarried, their enjoyment and satisfaction of the relationship tanked from what it was before. Big caveat, sometimes there are very hard and difficult and painful things that break marriages up, and I know this touches home for a lot of you. I'm not speaking about this lightly, but I'm pointing this out to agree with something that you probably already believe if this has happened to your friends. If you don't deal with your issues, and you think my problem was my first wife, or my second wife, or my third husband, or my fourth husband, the fire grows, and it consumes your life until there's nothing left. And it consumes other people until there's nothing left there either, if it's not dealt with. And that study is a perfect example of how that happens and how it kills the very thing these people were after, which is happiness. The more they chased it, the less they got it. 
it's easy to see that in a married couple sociology study. It's harder to see it in our own lives. Here's one more reason why it's so hard, and then we'll kind of shift to our last point on our, our exit strategy. James says here that these desires are so deceptive. They wear costumes covered in God talk and Christianese. He says these things are so deeply rooted and so deceptive, they wiggle and work their way into even your prayer life. Because he says right here in verse 2, he says you desperately crave, you desire these things, but you don't have it, so you kill. Or better yet, you take what other people won't give you. You take life if they won't give you life. You covet because you can't get. Oh, and by the way, when you do ask, you don't get you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives, these motives, um, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. And so these things are so subtle that they've actually worked their way deep into our life so that we can't even distinguish what a godly motivation and desire is from an evil one. And we begin to pray to God to give us these deep, hedonistic, selfish, me-centered, me-exalting cravings. Here's what these sound like. And there's a godly way to pray these prayers that's completely good and should be encouraged. And there's a hedonistic, self-serving, idolatrous way to pray these prayers. Lord, help me do good on this test. Dependence on your Father in heaven is a good thing. Uh, as Morgan said earlier, God does care about your tests. He's the one who ordained every little moment you live in your life. He wants you to talk to him about your tests. But what if you, are, you have laid your life down in service to the God of grace and you're asking the true and living God to help you worship this fake and non-existent God a little bit better? Or what if it's what I've done for years and years, Lord, help my relationship get better. When I was dating Anna, that was my prayer. Lord, just help this get easier. Help it get better. Help me to love her better. I just could, could this just be simple? That was my prayer. And I realize now in hindsight, what I was asking for, I am a lover of comfort. I love comfort. It's beautiful to me. I love just sitting back, disengaging from the world, watching my 30 rock. Life is good. But I realized that my prayer wasn't in godliness. My prayer was wrongly motivated, like James says here. My prayer was, God, please give me this other God, because you're kind of not doing it for me. All I want is my relationship to be cleaner and better so I can get back to comfort. That's all I want. That's all I'm asking for. Throw me a bone here. And I love this. God starts doing very unexpected things because we think God is loving. He's nice. He's generous. Of course God gives you any prayer you ask for. No, he doesn't. God delights in refusing some of our prayers because if he gave it to you, it would kill you. Think about it this way. James says this is such a deep problem. He calls us adulterous people. My question to you is why that word? Why doesn't he just say you selfish people or you self-serving people or you sinful people? He actually says all those things too. It's a great day. Uh, but he says you adulterous people. Adultery is a marriage word. Why does he say that? He assumes that if you are in Jesus, that if you are a Christian, you're not, you don't, Chris said this perfectly earlier. It's not that just that you're going to heaven. It's not just that you're a new person now or that you walk with God or that you behave now. What it means to be a Christian is to be married to the living God. 
He is your husband, you are his spouse. That is from page one in the Bible to the last page and every page in between. To know God is to be married to him. And so praying these prayers, though they sound holy and good, can accidentally, sometimes, deceptively be like me pleading with Anna. And even saying this makes me nauseous. Me saying, Anna, could you please just get a guest room ready? Just please get the house ready so my mistress can move in with us. Please? We don't want to leave her out on the street. If you're in a marriage with someone, there is no space for a third person. Our culture will allow anything with marriage today. But we still won't allow polygamy. Because everybody knows you can't love two spouses. And even the government is concerned you're going to take care of one wife and leave the rest to do whatever they want. And they're going to suffer. The government's going to have to take care of them because you want this one more than the rest. You can't have two masters. You can't have two spouses. James says some of our prayers, our motivations, our relationships are really clever ways to ask God to make room for our mistress to move in with us. God loves you. He will never get the guest room ready for your mistress to move in because it would be the end of your marriage. And though we might not even know what we're asking, he knows what you're asking. And he will protect you from you. And that is a good thing. And so this is getting a little bit complicated because these things are deeply hidden inside of us. I just want to make two points before we wrap up with our final point, our, 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 our conclusion. Just write this down and think about it through the week because we don't have time to talk about it. Love triangle. You ever watch Jerry Springer and any of these like, crazy talk shows when you're a little kid? Did you realize all of your relationships, you guys who are dating, married, engaged, whatever, do you realize there's three people in your marriage and it's not like, oh, God's the third person, or love is the third person in our marriage? <clears throat> your mistress is the third person in your marriage. There's actually four, because each of you have one. In every argument, every interaction you have, that other person is sitting there, comfort, pleasure, acceptance, validation, and they have a word to say about everything, too. They're like, fight for your rights. Don't let him take your comfort. Don't let him walk around without affirming you. Don't let him be insensitive to you. Don't let her walk over you like this. There's a third person in your relationship, and that's what wreaks havoc. And there's a third person in our relationship with God. We heard his whisper last week. The grass is greener on the other side. The grass is greener with another God. That's his strategy, and he's been doing it since day one. And he will continue until he's destroyed. This is what's on the line, relationship with God. And so what happens if you put one person right here and you fill my heart with these deep, compelling, strong, powerful pursuits and desires and cravings, and then you put another person in the same room in Garcia or the same marriage or the same house you grew up in, and they're like a freight train, raring to go with all of their deepest desires and cravings. And both, each of them want happiness, want comfort, want pleasure. So they're pushing down that gas pedal. What happens? Freight train here, freight train here, and they're both gunning it. What happens is the picture I put on Facebook today. Train wreck, engines on top of each other, and we're like, what just happened? And our dating relationships are one long series of what just happened? And marriage can become one long series of what just happened? How did we collide again? 
How are we having the same conversation with no resolution? It's because of this stuff. Now, man, you're like, gee, I'm so glad I came tonight. What great news. This is just awesome. I'm going to go home and just dwell on this tonight and soak it all in. Here's the good news and here's the gospel. This is our third point. There is an exit strategy because there is a God who isn't tied down by all of this nasty, ugly stuff that we are tied down by. He is still mobile. He is still agile. He is still able to meet you where you are. And so there is an exit strategy. Where do we see this in the passage? In verse 6. He says, don't you know? Again, James is like, don't you know your Bible? Don't you know that God yearns? You want to know what God craves? Now we're talking about God's motivation, God's cravings, God's have-to-haves in a sense. Don't you know he yearns jealously over the spirit that he put inside of you to dwell in you? Don't you know he's a husband who cares about his marriage to you? Not the indifferent husband who couldn't care less if you come back to the house with somebody. Don't you know he cares for you? That is where the good news and the gospel is in this passage. God won't share you with anybody. C.S. Lewis has a quote that says, we want to give God little bits and pieces of our lives, but he said it's just like in a marriage. Anna has every right in the world to expect 100% of Ben and nothing less. The times when Anna feels like I'm divided, I'm working too much. I'm spending too much time in the house. She doesn't just feel annoyed because I'm not around. She feels like our marriage has been hurt because she's having to share me with other lovers and other gods. God has an expectation for all of you, and he asks for nothing less than all of you, not a little bit here or a little bit there. Chris read it earlier. When you're united to Jesus, you die, and the new you raises up. This is all of you. Christianity is hard in that sense. It's easy in the sense that once you lay down your life, you finally, for the first time, ever taste what life actually is with this God. And so this is the beginnings of God's exit strategy that he pursues us. And in verse 6, the second part, he says, he gives you more grace, as if to say, have I talked you into the deepest pit of hopelessness, the first two points? God's like, yes, you're more depressed than you were 30 minutes ago. But verse 6, but there's even more grace. You remember the time where Paul says where sin increases, grace super increases or abounds? Grace is faster. Grace runs every sprint that it runs against your sin. It beats it every time. It's first to the tape. It always raises its hand in victory. God's grace outruns your sin if you're in Jesus. Even the complicated, tangled mess that we've been talking about tonight This is the last thing I'll say. If this is what God is doing in our relationships, if he is using your relationship problems, your conflict, your collisions to to shake you so that you will see what's on the inside, could it be that the hardest relationships you have are actually the ones he is most present in, the places he is most at work in on your behalf? Could it also be that your easiest relationships with your easiest friends are the places God is least at work because your friends are giving you all the desires that you want? This is life-changing if you begin to see how God will use your little spat with your roommate this week to get to deep places in your heart to say, Peter, Ben, Jameson, 
this is who you are. I knew about it when I married you. But I'm your husband. We're going to talk about this. We're going to deal with this because I am committed to you being different and your relationships looking different. Your most discouraging and disappointing relationships, whether it's a marriage, a boyfriend, girlfriend, a roommate, a parent, you in your own mind situation, I want to challenge you to start looking for God because that's the place he promises most to be, freeing you from yourself and these inner desires that wreak havoc in our lives. He is committed to you. He is committed to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that we see you on the cross giving all of yourself away for us. That is the surest picture ever that our God loves us to the end. That you have not withheld any piece or part of who you are. That you have given us all of yourself and all of what you are. We pray that you would use the hard places, the discouraging, painful, frustrating relationships in our lives. And that you would begin to wake us up in those hard places and, and to believe by faith that Jesus is here and now he's making me new. Help us to endure the difficulty because otherwise we know we will run. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen.